Our scripture reading this morning is taken firstly from Exodus chapter 4 and then from Romans chapter 3. So firstly then Exodus chapter 4 where we'll read the verses 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So far from Exodus, we'll now turn to Romans chapter 3, where we'll read the verses 21 through to the first half of 25. Romans 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So far. And our text for this morning's sermon is from Exodus chapter 4, the verses 24b second half of verse 24, where it says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
After the sermon, we'll sing together in response from Psalm 130, the verses 2 and 4. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this text to us does not make much sense. In the chapters and verses before it, we've seen how the Lord God had set out to deliver his people from Egypt in order to work out his promised salvation in Jesus Christ. To perform that next step in his intended plan of salvation, God had selected and picked up the tool of his choice. Moses, the Egyptian refugee living in Midian, the prince with the tarnished record. But now, in the very next paragraph, we read that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. It leaves us puzzled. Does God flip-flop? Does God pick up a tool one day, only to attempt to destroy that tool the next? God gives us all tasks in his kingdom, be it as parents or teachers, school board members or office bearers, secretaries or tradesmen. Does he call us to that task one day, only to seek to kill us the next? What sort of God is this? No, brothers and sisters, the Lord does not flip-flop. With heavenly wisdom, he picks up the tools of his choice, whether that be Moses or you or me, so that through us as his instruments, he might accomplish a particular step in the plan of redemption, in his plan to bring about the coming of the Saviour. But the tools that he picks up to use are, at the same time, persons that he wishes to save. They're sinners that need deliverance from their sins and misery. And so God confronts Moses with his sinfulness, so that in turn Moses might delight in the redemption that God prepares in Jesus Christ. And in this way, the tool of God's choice is fine-tuned, is equipped for better service in God's hand, made more able to lay the gospel before the people of Israel. And so I summarise the message of our text with this theme, In seeking to kill Moses, the Lord teaches Moses his need for God's redemption. And we'll consider two points. In the first place, why God sought to kill. And in the second place, why God did not kill. Firstly then, why God sought to kill. It happened on the way to Egypt. According to the command of God, Moses gave up his job as shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro and travelled the road back to the land of his birth. His wife and two sons accompanied him on a donkey. The coming of night meant that it was time to stop and accordingly Moses rested his family at a campsite along the way. Were Moses and Zipporah and the boys chatting around the campfire before bed? We're not told. But the peace of the campsite was broken by the Lord's effort to kill Moses. Through a fight? 
Did Moses' health suddenly fail? Again, we don't know and the details are not important. Important is only what the Lord has told us and that is, at a lodging place, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Yes, we're puzzled by God's attempt on Moses' life. For Moses was a chosen tool of the Lord, one through whom God determined to carry out a specific task in his kingdom. Moses had objected five times over that he wasn't the man for the job, that he didn't have the required gifts, didn't have the courage, etc. But God wasn't to be swayed by Moses' objections. He was the tool of God's choice. Yet scarcely has Moses set out to do God's bidding and see God seeks to kill him, to kill the very man whom he'd called to perform a particular task. Is there not great inconsistency here? Can God be trusted? Our text, brothers and sisters, does not spell out in so many words why God sought to kill Moses. Yet there is sufficient evidence in the passage to to allow us to discern what the motive of God was. For when God met Moses and sought to kill him, verse 25 tells us that Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son. Then, says verse 26, after Eliezer was circumcised, then the Lord left Moses alone. So one needs to conclude that the Lord was displeased with Moses because Moses had not had his son circumcised and therefore the Lord sought to kill him. Now, this conclusion needs more colour, needs more explanation. We need to recall that Moses knew full well that his boys were to be circumcised. The author of the letter to the Hebrews was moved by the Holy Spirit to describe Moses as follows in Hebrews 11. Says he, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. End of quote. The implication of this statement is that Moses, certainly when he went to see how his people were doing 40 years ago, was a man of faith. And faith includes that one knows and accepts the promises of God. Well now, those promises of God to Israel, including to Moses, were caught up in the sacrament of circumcision. Moses knew, as God had said to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 11, that circumcision was a sign of the covenant between me and you. Precisely because of the riches captured in the sacrament of circumcision, God insisted in that same chapter of Genesis that, quote, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations He who is born in your house shall be circumcised. End of quote. Indeed, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. 
Moses knew the meaning of circumcision and had embraced it in faith. And that's why he'd chosen rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. The evidence indicates too that after his departure from Egypt 40 years ago, Moses for some time clung to this faith, worked with this faith, practiced this faith. For when God sought to kill Moses at the campsite, Zipporah cut off the foreskin of her son. Notice the singular. She cut off the foreskin of one son, not two. The implication is that the other son was already circumcised. And that, in turn, suggests that Moses, at the birth of his first son, had carried out the command of God to circumcise every male born within his house. Gershom, his firstborn, was circumcised. Yet Moses' second child was obviously not circumcised when he was eight days old, for Zipporah circumcised him at the campsite. Why had Moses failed to carry out God's command when his second son turned eight days old? Possibly, the attitude of Zipporah, as recorded in this part of Scripture, gives the answer. For when she cut off her son's foreskin, she touched Moses' feet with the severed skin and then spoke in repulsive terms of Moses being a bridegroom of blood. Indeed, it's because of the circumcision that Zipporah calls Moses a bridegroom of blood. And that suggests that Moses' wife was very much offended by the whole concept of circumcision. It seems she found it so repulsive that she prevented Moses from administering the rite to her second son, Eliezer. Now, however that may have been, the fact is clear that Moses did not obey the command of God in Genesis 17 to have his son circumcised. Though Eliezer was a child of the covenant... Moses, as father, did not give to him the sign and seal of that covenant. God, in Genesis 17, calls that failure a breaking of the covenant. Though we might be able to explain the reasons why Moses didn't obey the command, might even be able to understand possible domestic tensions leading up to Moses' decision, the fact of the matter is that here was sin on Moses' part. The man whom God had chosen as his tool for a particular task in the kingdom was clearly not above criticism. Indeed, so open to criticism was Moses that God himself met him and sought to kill him. And God let him alone only when Zipporah performed on the boy the circumcision that Moses should have performed long ago. It makes one think, brothers and sisters, is failing to circumcise really so terrible a sin as to deserve this attack from God? After all, circumcision, like baptism, does not essentially change a person's standing before God. Like baptism, circumcision does not make one a covenant child. Rather, one receives the sacrament because one already is a covenant child. Why then make such a fuss over the matter? Does God really insist on obedience to even the small details of his law, even when such obedience will produce nothing but hassles? 
It seems so. But what kind of a God is the Lord then? We can easily lose ourselves in numerous questions, even conclude that that God lacks understanding of human situations. Yet it is not for us, congregation, to look at events from a human point of view, but rather we are to look at them from God's point of view. God seeks to kill. And killing implies putting someone to death. Already in paradise, God had said, In the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Genesis 2 verse 17. Man had eaten. In Adam, each man had eaten. Moses too. More, ever since the fall into sin, each person was sinful. Sinned every day. Moses too. And God's word stood fast. The wages of sin remains death. So God, while Moses was at the campsite, approached this sinner, meets him, as our text says. And the word meet implies that God saw Moses face to face, looked him in the eye. And what God saw when he looked closely at this tool of his choosing was nothing else than that this man Moses was sinful, was a sinner and consequently deserved to die. The fact that Moses did not circumcise his youngest son was evidence of that sinfulness. Here was a depraved man, perhaps using the reasoning of his depraved mind to save the peace in his household, but in the process living in explicit disobedience to God's command. Sinfulness and depravity, that's written all over Moses' conduct. That God sought to kill Moses is then, brothers and sisters, not so surprising. Moses, like everybody else, was a sinner. And therefore, like everybody else, deserved to die long ago. Such is the consequence of God's holy identity as God. The consequence of man's broken identity as sinner. At bottom... What is surprising is not that the Lord sought to kill Moses. What is surprising is that the Lord hadn't killed him before. What shall we learn from God's attack on Moses? That failing to circumcise is so terrible a sin that God breaks forth in anger? Or shall we learn that God is fickle? That one day he picks up a tool and the next day he seeks to smash it because of its brokenness? No, brothers and sisters, it's not these things that we shall learn. What we shall learn is that God shows no favoritism. The wages of all sin remains death, regardless of who the sinner is. Moses was a covenant child. He also received a special task in God's kingdom. But God saw sin in the man. And therefore, despite the fact that he was a chosen tool in God's hand... God treated him as every sinner deserves to be treated. Each should die. You see, God shows no favoritism. No matter how high a calling one receives in God's kingdom, the wages of sin remains death. And we, yes, we have received a high calling in God's kingdom. In sovereign wisdom, God has made some of us parents of his covenant children. 
Surely there's no higher task in God's kingdom than to be entrusted with the care of God's little ones. Others of us receive a task from God to be tools in his hand in a boardroom, tools in his hand on the building site, in the office, in the grocery store. God picks up still others of us in order to use us in the special offices of the church. Noble work, Paul calls it in 1 Timothy 3. To be tools in his hands. What privilege beyond compare. But never, brothers and sisters, never does the fact that God picks us up to be tools in his hands mean that we're above criticism. God himself found fault with Moses and so sought to kill him. And God does not need a microscope to find fault with us either. On the contrary. Whether in our task as parents or in our task on the building side or in the office, whether in our task as students or as office bearers, it makes no difference. None of us is above reproach. All of us are worthy of God meeting us in the consistory room or in the boardroom or in the bedroom and seeking to kill us. The surprise is not that we're worthy of God's judgment. The marvel is that he has not killed us. And that brings us to our second point, why God did not kill Moses. Yes, Moses was spared. The text does not say that the Lord met Moses and killed him. Rather, it says that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. And we read in verse 26 that after the boy was circumcised, God let Moses alone. What does this mean? Does this suggest that God's judgment is not to be taken too seriously after all? After an initial explosion of wrath, God's anger relaxes and he lets his intended victims go? We know better. Yes, God sought to kill Moses and yet he didn't do it. Why is that? And the answer, because Zipporah circumcised that uncircumcised boy. Yet it was not her reluctant act of removing the foreskin itself that appeased God's anger against Moses. No, twice in that paragraph, reference is made to blood. And there's the point. God sees blood and therefore lets Moses alone. The scriptures make plain congregation that the shedding of blood means death. Specifically, shed blood spells out the coming death of Jesus Christ. This was God's plan. Though all deserved to die because of sin, God's wrath on sin would be poured out not on the sinners who deserved it, but on his own son, who would be made sin in place of sinners. The blood of this circumcision in Exodus 4, like the blood of every circumcision in Israel, foreshadowed Calvary, and because of Calvary, God lets Moses alone. Christ would die on Calvary, so that Moses might not die at that campsite. Christ would pay for sin on Calvary, so that Moses would not have to pay for sin through his death at the hands of holy God. Christ would die on Calvary, so that the sinner Moses might be declared righteous before God, Justified, seen by God to be without sin, innocent. 
It was not Zipporah's desperate handling of the flint knife that secured Moses' release from God's attack. But it was Christ's death on Calvary that did. God was working to bring about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And the first step on that road was to pick up Moses as the instrument of his choice to deliver his people. But the instrument of his choice was a sinful man. And so the need for the Christ was underlined even more. Moses himself so desperately needed the Saviour that God was intending to send. The brokenness of Moses cried out for the coming of the Redeemer. Is God's fury real? Need one fear God in his anger against sin? Before Moses left for Egypt, the Lord said to him that he would slay Pharaoh's firstborn son if he refused to let Israel go. Did God do it? Or was Pharaoh's son let go? We know full well what God did. At midnight... The Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Exodus twelve twenty nine. He did it. But the firstborn son of Israel was spared. Why? Because they were covenant people? Because they served the Lord so zealously? Because they had a special task in God's plan to bring his son into the world? No, brothers and sisters, no. Being a covenant child in itself does not save anybody. Serving God as best as you can does not save anybody. Being a tool in God's hands to do a particular task in God's kingdom does not save anybody either. Every firstborn of the Israelites would have died too, regardless of breeding or task or zeal, if there were no blood around the doors of their homes. Blood. Calvary. There is wrath on all sin, on every sinner. There is judgment for all, and God shows no partiality. But that judgment is for some deflected onto Jesus Christ. And so the person who deserves judgment is spared. None is let go just like that. No, no one is let go unless Jesus Christ stands in their place to receive the just wages of their sin. And so we are confronted here, congregation, with the promise of the gospel and with its demand. Here is spelled out that God's judgment on sin is very real. And there is no way of escape apart from the blood of Christ, no matter who you are. Here is illustrated what Paul writes in Romans 2, that none escapes the judgment of God. There is no partiality. And what he writes in Romans 3, that there is righteousness before God only through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. To quote Paul from Romans 3 verse 22, There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We, like Moses, deserve to die 
irrespective of how God may be pleased to use us as tools in his hands. That reality can and must lead to humility on our part. We live by grace alone. And that grace is so real, so abundant and so present. Moses was spared because, of the, blood of, because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to cover his sins. And we are spared for the same reason. That is the gospel. Christ died for us, died in our place. You live. I live because Christ died. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? God met Moses at the campsite and sought to kill him. When Christ comes back, he'll meet you in your office or in your kitchen or maybe at your campsite. He'll look you in the eye and see your shortcomings, see your sins, see your failures. And Christ Jesus will recall the words of God in the Garden of Eden that if you eat, you die. The wages of sin remains death. The task that God has given in his kingdom, what sort of a tool we may be in his sovereign hands, shall make no difference, for God shows no favoritism. Whether God uses us as parents of his covenant children, or as boss in the workplace, or as office bearer in the church, shall be irrelevant. We shall escape eternal death only through the blood that Christ shed on Calvary a blood imputed to us as often as we, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. The Lord meets you on the path of your life. You do believe in the only Saviour, don't you? You see, God declares blessed only those who seek refuge in him. Amen. Amen.